Welcome. It's really good to be back with you again. Let's read the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, shall we, from Acts chapter 15. We read the first half of the story uh, last week, and uh, we'll recap in a minute and, and get back to it. But um, we'll break into the middle of the story just where we start our passage in verse 22 of Acts chapter 15. Here we go. Then the apostles and elders, this is after the big conference we were speaking about last week, then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. One of the lessons of Palm Sunday is that uh, people's attitudes can change very quickly. The same crowd that were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday were baying for his blood within a week. And this is a point at which our reading suddenly changes course. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns when we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, that's our passage. And uh, can we get the... Thank you, Chloe, that's great. That's brilliant. The, the, the picture you're seeing on the screen now is the city of Antioch, where all of this is centered. And Antioch was becoming, at the time that we're, our story starts, one of the big centers of Christianity in the world. Let's look at the map. We know that the church started in Jerusalem, down there where the red dot is, um, uh, on the day of Pentecost. And it started to spread out from there. And that uh, blue dot that you might just see a little bit further north, 300 miles in fact, 10 days travel away from Jerusalem, is the city of Antioch in Syria. And uh, in Antioch, uh, people became Christians very quickly. It all started, of course, when Peter went to Caesarea and talked to the centurion Cornelius and his family. Very unwillingly, he was surprised to find himself doing it, but they were the first Gentiles, non-Jews, who became Christians. And that's when that uh, pink dot, no, it's not there yet, there it is, 
uh, pink dots. Oh, what am I doing? I'm, yeah. I, sorry. I can probably do this, can't I? I'm, I'm, I'm changing on there and not doing what I do. There's a pink dot. That's Cornelius and his family. But Antioch was quite different. When there was persecution going on in the church. Now, this is not doing it. Sorry, Chloe. It's you again. Um, when there was persecution in the church, Jews had to leave Jerusalem. And as they went to those different places that they, they, they fled to, they started talking about Jesus. And some people from North Africa and from Cyprus told the gospel, the message of Jesus, to non-Jews. That wasn't, didn't usually happen. But lots of them became Christians in Antioch, and a big church started there. And so a non-Jewish church starts there, and uh, uh, people in Jerusalem hear about it. They send up Barnabas, one of the Jerusalem leaders, to see what's going on. He's delighted. And he goes a along the coast a little bit to Tarsus, where a friend of his called Paul is living. And brings Paul to Antioch. And for a year they teach and preach in Antioch. The church grows and grows. And then the Holy Spirit says to the church, send out Paul and Barnabas. I've got work for them to do. So they go off to Cyprus. And the pink starts to appear on Cyprus too. Because people start becoming Christians there. Then they cross to the mainland, you might remember. Uh, over the last few weeks we've traced their travels. And on the mainland too, um, people become Christians. And churches are planted all over uh, that part of Anatolia in southern Turkey. Now, that means that the people back in Jerusalem are starting to get a little bit concerned, and hardline Jews in Jerusalem are worried about all of these non-Jews who are becoming Christians. Aren't they supposed to keep all the Jewish laws? Aren't they supposed to get circumcised and not eat certain kinds of food and stuff like that? And so, as we saw last week, there was a big conference in Jerusalem where people were invited down from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, to talk about the whole situation. And the end of that conference, as we saw last time, was that they decided that the, G the Gentiles did not have to keep all the Jewish laws. They would be asked to do certain things just so that they didn't offend the Jewish Christians who had certain habits that um, were uh, things they'd always done, but they wouldn't be asked to keep the whole law. And so this week, uh, what we've got, moving on to the next, next one. Oh, no, sorry. This is just a recap of last week. We looked at the conference and all of the things that happened. And if you can just click through the next five very quickly, Chloe. Uh, these are the lessons that we learned last week. Proceed cautiously. Uh, it's changed the font for some reason here. Uh, listen carefully. Look for what God is doing. Uh, share what you've experienced. And uh, keep a balance. Sorry about the fonts. They're supposed to be saved with the thing so that you see it the way it's supposed to be, but it's not working that way this morning. Okay, so what have we got this week? Three things. First of all, the document, the letter that they actually wrote. Second, the delivery of it. What actually happened? Because it's one thing writing a letter. It's another thing making sure that people understand what you've written. And that's especially important in an age of email, isn't it? It's easy to dash off an email and click the send button just because you're in a hurry. And the person at the other end thinks, what is he talking about? Is this a friendly email? Is it a hostile email? Did he really mean August or was he talking about September? You know, I, 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 and uh, it's easy for us to make mistakes or send something that we think is friendly and you think, oh, that's a nasty thing to say. And the way you deliver a message is important. So the second thing in this is the delivery. How are they going to get that message through to Antioch in a way that will be received properly and understood? And the third thing is the dispute, right at the end of the passage. You find the last thing you would expect. Paul and Barnabas, who've worked together so well in the past, who've known one another for years. Uh, Barnabas championed Paul when he first became a Christian. and said, yep, he's a genuine Christian. This is a guy that you've got to be friends with. This is somebody who's going to be so important for the history of the church. 
And Paul and Barnabas have worked together in Antioch, then around uh, southern Turkey, um, all over the place. They've been down to Jerusalem and uh, fought their corner in the Jerusalem conference. They look like guys who will stick together for life. And suddenly it all goes wrong. And there's a dispute. And they go off in different directions. And as far as we know, never work together again. So the first thing is the document. And uh, that's a brilliantly written letter. The second thing is the delivery of it. And that's a beautifully handled encounter. But the third thing is the dispute. And that's a badly messed up situation. So those are the three things we've got to look at here. Let's start with the document. And uh, this is it. And you'll notice there are one or two things in there which um, uh, are, are quite interesting because they tell you exactly what the people who wrote the document were shooting for. They could have started off, the apostles and elders, your superiors, your leaders, the people you must follow. They don't. Notice the first thing is, they say, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch. And they just say, your brothers. We're one with you. And just as Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, so we've got to learn that kind of humility with one another. We may be leaders. We may know more than somebody else. We may think our opinions are much better founded than theirs, but we're still all brothers and sisters together. And so they start off in that way. And then second, they say, we've heard that some went out from us without our authorization. They distance themselves from what's been said in their name. We want you to be absolutely clear what we're saying here. Now, they could have defended these people because, after all, the people who were going around saying things about the Gentiles have to keep the law, non-Jews must do this and do that and do the other thing, they were well-respected members of the church in Jerusalem. And they might have said, well, you know, sometimes our brothers have got a little bit too enthusiastic and they may have said a few things that disturbed you, but hey, hey, we're all in this together, God. They didn't. They said, no, what these people are saying is wrong. We never said they could say it. It was without our authorization, and we're going to give you a completely new deal now. Third thing is, so we all agreed. It was something that they'd come to together. It wasn't just that the leader said, I think we're going to do this. We'll announce it to the church next week, and then everybody must fall in line. No, they took time to make sure that everybody, as we saw last week, was of one mind about this. The next thing they said was, we're going to send some men to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul were the representatives of Antioch. They'd come down the road to talk about what, uh, what uh, the Antioch believers had come to believe. And uh, it, it would be possible to, 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 to send them back with a flea in their ear. It'd be possible for people in Antioch to say, how did they treat Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas are our teachers. They've been leading us for a year now. We, we respect Paul and Barnabas. Did they? And they say, yep. They are our dear brothers, men who've risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. They appreciated the people who came from the other side. And then the next thing is, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond what we're going to say. In other words, they claimed the authority of the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is not some decision we've plucked out of the blue. This is not some sort of compromise that's come out of a smoke-filled room. This is something that we've prayed about, we've wrestled with, and we believe that God has said to us where we've got to go from here. So it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We go along with it. Whatever the Spirit says, we want to do, and we want you to do the same. And the final thing that's interesting, I suppose, is the list at the end of it. So what does all of this teach us? Let's have a, a look at that. Next, next one, please, uh, Chloe, thank you. It's important to, first of all, be welcoming and friendly. They started off by saying, you're our brothers. That was how the Apostle Paul came to Christ in the first place. Do you remember? 
He was struck blind on the road to Damascus. He was told to go and find this man in a, a, a room in the street called Straight, and he went in and found him, and as he walked up the stairs and then across the floor towards Ananias, he must have wondered what was going to happen to him. What was this Christian who now had him at his mercy going to do with him? And as he walked across the floor, Ananias said his first words. And the first two words he said were, Brother Saul. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? He accepted and welcomed Saul as a Christian, just like that. Brother Saul. He wasn't even a Christian yet. He still had to uh, have the scales fall from his eyes and all that sort of stuff. But I know where you're going. You're coming right into the family, and I'm welcoming you as my brother. And that meant a lot to Saul, obviously, because Paul tells his conversion story three times in the book of Acts. And when he tells it again, he said, Brother Saul, he called me Brother Saul. He repeats the phrase because obviously it meant something to him. And similarly here, they're welcoming, they're friendly. There was a possibility of tension, a possibility of argument, and they defuse that with their very first words in the letter. Second, it's important to make clear what you're not saying. Uh, these people who've come and taught you before, we didn't authorize that. That is not what we're saying. Let's be absolutely clear where we stand here. And you know, so many arguments in churches and between individuals start because people don't speak precisely. They'll say things that are a little bit vague, can be read two ways, or, or just go a little bit beyond the evidence, and then the other side takes offense and all blows up like that. There's a great bit at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes where the writer of Ecclesiastes is introduced, and it talks about why he was a very wise man. One of the things it, it says is, he pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs, and he tried to express them exactly. <laughs> Speaking exactly, speaking precisely, making sure the other side knows exactly what you're talking about helps an awful lot. I think a lot of the doctrinal debates you see on internet sites where Christians wage war against one another on election and predestination and the, the second coming and the doctrine of the spirit and so on, a lot of that would not happen and would not cause so much aggro if only people spoke more precisely and listened to what the other side was saying. Third thing, do it unitedly. Do it together. Don't get one or two people to make a decision who say, right, I'm deciding this, and you've all got to go in with it. Take everybody along with you. Fourth, show appreciation. Our dear brothers, Barnabas and Saul, you might be on a different side of a question, but still accept what one another are doing. And if only we did that more in the church of Jesus Christ, if we appreciated people who are not like ourselves, people who have different opinions, people who worship in different ways, how much more we could learn from one another. Then seek God's will and accept it gladly. That's the Holy Spirit and us. Seek God's will. Go to the Spirit. What do you want to say in this one? Don't just trust your own un unaided intellect. And then when the Spirit has said it, go along with it. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We are really glad to do this. Okay, we're going against centuries and centuries of Jewish conditioning here. We're walking away from Leviticus 17 and 18. We're saying it doesn't apply to you guys. That seems like a dangerous thing to do, but the Holy Spirit wants us to do it, so we are glad about that. And then the final thing is this list of the, the, the things at the end of it. Now, this might seem a strange list to us. You guys, you want to be Christians? Okay, here is what you've got to do. I've read many little evangelistic booklets, which end with a page about, so what next? Now you've prayed the prayer. How do you live life as a Christian? Here's some good advice for you. And usually it's one, pray regularly, two, read your Bible, uh, three, find good fellowship, 
Four, share your faith with other people. All good advice. And I'll bet the Gentiles did that as well, these Gentile Christians here. I have never yet read a booklet that says, so now you're a Christian, what do you do? Well, one, don't marry your ex-wife's sister. Two, don't eat any animal that's been strangled. And three, stay well away from black pudding. You don't see that much, do you? <laughs> Why? Well, because the restrictions that are given here are, are, are not an important part of the gospel. What the council at Jerusalem was saying was, here are some things that will offend Jews. They're flashpoints. So these are the only things that we want you to be very, very careful about. They weren't rules for all time. I mean, within five years, you find Paul writing to the Corinthians about meat offered to idols and saying something quite different from here. And in nine years' time, when he writes to the Romans, he says, it's a matter of personal opinion. Let everybody do what's right in his own mind. But at this important, sensitive moment, there are some aspects of the Jewish law and John Stott said, it's only a few of them. All four of the requested abstentions related to ceremonial laws laid down in Leviticus 17 and 18. Three of them concerned dietary matters which could inhibit Jewish Gentile common meals. So there were things that were flashpoints then. In the church for the first time, Jews and Gentiles were getting together. They were thinking about marrying one another. They were certainly having meals with one another. So in that area of life, there were one or two things that would make Jews feel very uncomfortable if the Gentiles weren't thoughtful and sensitive. And so that's why those particular things are listed there. It was all about being thoughtful, about being together as a family. But that's the letter, great letter, but it still had to be delivered. What do we know about the delivery? Well, notice one or two things about the delivery. I won't say much about this. The first thing is they got it all at the same time. When they had got the church together, they delivered the message. As they traveled 10 days' journey up from Jerusalem to Antioch, the messengers must have been bursting to give, give the good news to the Christians they met. And possibly they came into the city of Antioch, they saw somebody new on the street and said, have you got news from Jerusalem? What are they saying? What have those apostles decided? And they, they must have been bursting to tell them. But instead they said, no, no, hang on a minute, let's wait till we get everybody together. And that is so important that people get the message properly delivered all at the same time. Why? Because if some people get it and then others, you know what happens, Chinese whispers. The message changes as it goes down the line. And it's so important that everybody hears. When I've been, when I was on the leadership team at, at Belmont, there were two big decisions we made that we were desperate that people should know all about very, very carefully. One concerned the ministry of women, the other concerned divorce and remarriage. Let's not go into that stuff this morning. But they were tricky decisions. And I remember the effort we went to to make sure that every single member of the church, and there were over 300 of us, got the message exactly at the same time so that rumors couldn't spread so that nothing could be misinterpreted, so that everybody knew at once. And it's very important to do that. And so they got it all at the same time. Second, the tone of it filled them with joy. It didn't come across as, well, you guys, I suppose you've got to be Christian, so let's make some rules for you here. No, it was an accepting, warm, welcoming letter, as we, as we saw, and it just strengthened the bonds between Antioch and Jerusalem. It made them feel, what are these guys are really shooting for us? They're not saying, well, I suppose you can be Christians if you really want to join our club. <laughs> they were saying, you're welcome. You're our brothers. We already accept you, and we want to make it as easy as possible for you to follow Jesus as we can possibly make it. 
And that's how it should be, shouldn't it, when we come to a decision about a difficult issue together. The result should not be just a grudging acceptance. Well, it's the best compromise we can do for the moment. That's what you get in politics all the time. Hmm. Seen it over Brexit, seen it again over vaccines. And uh, it's, it's all a matter of compromise and inch by inch and then going back on your decision and trying to get a better one. When Christians come together and are united about something, there should be joy. Third thing, they were strengthened and encouraged by the work that uh, Judas Barsabas uh, and uh, Silas did uh, preaching amongst them. What's the difference between strengthening and encouraging? Well, encouraging, that's the word parakaleo, uh, which means to basically standing alongside somebody and strengthening him there and then. But the word for strengthened is a word that talks about the future. You need encouragement now to keep you going and motivating. But strengthening thinks about your future. Now, you need both things together. I was just thinking, thinking about the difference between the two words, about when I was at school, some of the teachers I had were not really that inspiring. And it was a case of, right, Alan, write it down. You need to know this stuff. So write it down in your book and then go home and learn it. Why? Never mind, you'll need it for the exam. You know, and at the time, that's very unmotivating. What am I learning this stuff for? Why do I need to know the date of the Treaty of Vienna? Why do I need to know the different Bible, whatever it was? And uh, it feels very uninspiring. But later on, you find, yes, I do need this stuff. It's important. And some of the things that I wrote down when I was 16 or 17 that I saw no point in whatsoever have been quite important data for me to remember in my head the rest of my life. That's strengthening. That's looking to the future. But encouraging is saying, look, this stuff is exciting. I had a history teacher who could really make the whole thing come alive. He could make you feel you're right there when the corn laws were being repealed or when the Russian revolution was happening. And, you know, you could see right from the start how important and exciting this stuff was. And you came out of his lessons enthused and encouraged. And I nearly did history as a result at university. And I've been slightly sorry since I didn't. <laughs> and he, he not only strengthened you for the future, he encouraged you in the present. Now, that was what was going on with, with Judas and uh, with Silas. They were encouraging people right now. But it wasn't just going to be a five-minute thrill, that a glow that subsided as soon as they'd gone the, down the road back to Jerusalem. They were also strengthening them. They were giving them things that would stay with them for years. And, you know, I have listened to lots of sermons down through my lifetime. And I can remember many of them just as a kind of vague, wow, that was a wonderful thing. I can't remember a thing the guy said, but it was great. And there are others that have really gone in and stayed there. There are things that I heard that have strengthened me for the future as well as encouraging me for the present. So that was what was going on with Silas uh, and Judas. And uh, at the end of that whole thing, the Christians in uh, Antioch gave peace back. Did you notice it said that they sent off Judas and Silas back down the road to, to, to Jerusalem with the blessing of peace? Of course, that was a usual farewell in those days. You said, shalom peace, or irene in Greek. Uh, peace was the, just the way you said goodbye. But they really meant it. They wanted that peace, that binding together to be there over the whole church. And the way that Judas and Silas had taught them and led them during their time there had encouraged them so much. They wanted all of the blessings possible for the Christians in Jerusalem as well. This is brilliant delivery of a message, isn't it? And the result of that is the final thing is this. The Lord's word went everywhere. And you see, if you look at the end of the account, many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. 
People who'd never taken the gospel out to their friends before suddenly wanted to talk about it. People who'd never raised their voice in public found themselves preaching because they just wanted to share what they'd got with everybody. And this is what happens when Christians form this kind of community where peace abounds. The word spreads naturally. It wasn't that uh, Judas and Silas had said, look, we're going home now, but um, we want you to plan an evangelistic campaign for next week. Put all your effort into it and bring people to the Lord. They didn't do that. They just created an atmosphere in which it naturally happened and the word of God multiplied. And then, of course, things go bad. There's a final thing, the dispute. What happened here? Well, uh, if we go on to the, the next one, please, thank you. What happened in the dispute? Well, it was a sharp disagreement, some translations put it. It really was a tough one. And in Greek, uh, it's, these are the three words. There therefore arose a sharp disagreement. And you'll see the word in Greek for disagreement is paroxysmos. We've got that word in English, haven't we? Paroxysm. Something that's a violent attack. Something where you're just seized by a force outside yourself and you can do nothing about it. It was that kind of argument, shouting, shouting. And it ended with them running away from one another. And if we go on to the next one, you'll see that um, the word that's used for the way they separated is the word apocorizo, which means to separate completely, to part asunder. You only find it twice in the Bible. This is one of the places, and the other one is Revelation chapter 6, where it talks about the heavens being rolled up like a scroll, taken right away from the earth. And apocorizo is the word that's used there too. The heavens and the earth separate in a total dividing that just leaves John in Revelation absolutely overawed. I didn't think that was possible. And it happens in a minute, zip, just like that. And that's exactly what happened here. One blazing row, and suddenly the whole thing is over. Now, Christians haven't liked this bit of Acts, and so down through the years, they've tried to change it a little bit. <laughs> There's actually a very fake document called the Acts of Barnabas, which was written about 500 years later, purporting to tell what happened to Barnabas and uh, uh, Paul and what, how Barnabas went back to Cyprus and got himself martyred. It's all fake. It's all untrue. And I think the bit about the argument rings less true than any other. If we go on to the next one, this is what it says. Therefore, bending their knees, they prayed to God. This is after they've had the disagreement about John Mark. And Paul, growing aloud, wept. And in like manner also Barnabas, saying to one another, it would have been good for us to work in common among men. But since it has thus seemed good to thee, Father Paul, pray for me that my labor may be made perfect to commendation. For thou knowest how I have served thee also to the grace of Christ that has been given to thee. For I go to Cyprus and hasten to be made perfect. For I know that I shall no more see thy face, O Father Paul. And falling to the ground at his feet, he wept long. And Paul said to him, the Lord stood by me also this night, saying, do not force Barnabas not to go to Cyprus. For there it has been prepared for him to enlighten many. And do thou also in the grace that has been given to thee, go to Jerusalem to worship in the holy place. And there it shall be shown thee where thy martyrdom has been prepared. And they saluted one another and Barnabas took me to himself. That's nice, isn't it? It's also completely fake. <laughs> it was a paroxysmos. It was a violent outbreak. It was Paul, red-faced, shouting at Barnabas, saying, you bigoted idiot! You just want your family member to go to, with us because, uh, be, because he's family, and he's let us down before. How, when will you understand? And, and you see, Barnabas said, I thought you were interested in young people. You talk enough about that guy, Timothy, that you met way over there in Lister and Derby, but 
you, you don't give any chance to John Mark. Look, where's the grace of God in all of this? You don't accuse, and so on, it goes on. And that was the way it went. So what do we learn about disputes from this? Well, I think four things. First of all, if the devil's losing ground, he'll provoke a disagreement. <laughs> it's his best way of putting a spoke in the wheel of the work of the Lord. Yeah, starting an argument is so simple. Uh, it's, I, I read an article once about problems in churches, and it said there are two types of problems. There are structural problems, and there are people problems. Now, structural problems hamper the work of the church in some way. There are things like, you know, uh, before you can get a check out of the treasurer, you need to fill in five forms and uh, pray very hard, or something like that. Or the old lady who operates the internet doesn't uh, the internet site doesn't really understand computers, and so it gets updated once every 350 years. You know, those kinds of things. Those kinds of problems hamper the work of the church, but they can all be coped with. And churches can hobble along with structural problems for years and years. The other problem, people problems, are completely different. When people fall out with one another, it can close a church very, very quickly. And uh, David Knowles in Belmont, who used to be the, the chair of our leadership team uh, down through the years, kept on saying to the rest of us who were on the leadership team again and again, always remember this church is only ever two weeks away from closure. And uh, he's a pessimistic old guy, David, but uh, he's realistic too. And uh, absolutely right, because I have seen that happen, that when there are disputes between Christians, Satan can use that as he can use nothing else to hamper and destroy the work of God. So that's what he was trying here. And the second principle, it seems to me, is we can manage these things well, or we can manage them badly. And Paul and Barnabas started off on the wrong foot here. And as a result... Uh, the gospel spread in two different directions, but it wasn't the way it was supposed to happen at all. Can you imagine when Paul and Silas go back into southern Turkey uh, and uh, they, they, they go to some of the churches they visited and, uh, and they see him, where's Barnabas? That nice guy, that older guy who was with you when you came around the first time, what happened to him? Uh, well, we're not actually speaking anymore. But you're supposed to be Christians. What's going on here? You know, it was embarrassing. And uh, we can manage these problems well or badly. And they started out badly, but in the end, they did well. We'll see that in a moment. Third, God can use disputes for the good of people, but he doesn't send them or want them. You see, through this, various things happened that were good. God sent Barnabas back to Cyprus to plant churches there, and a strong Christian witness emerged in that island, which they'd barely touched before. John Mark went back to where he'd started out in Christian ministry and grew stronger and more confident and ended up as a very, very valued Christian indeed. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is not too bad. First of the Gospel writers. He was Peter's assistant for some years. He's referred to in three of Paul's later letters. And in one of them, Paul says to Timothy, bring Mark with you when you come because he's so useful to me. And so clearly it was good for Mark. It was good for Timothy as well, because when Paul had to find somebody else to go with, he chose Silas and he chose Timothy. And that propelled them into an incredibly important ministry for the, the next few years. If Barnabas had still been around with Paul, they wouldn't have had that chance. And so there are lots of things that happened as a result of this disagreement which God used. But although God uses disagreements, that doesn't mean God sends them along. 
It's like evil, isn't it? The evil things that happen to us in our lives are not God's plan for us. That's not the way he wants things to be. But Romans 8.28 promises us that in everything that happens, God is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when evil things like quarrels happen, God's still at work in those to bring good out of evil. That does not mean he approves of it to start with. And the fourth thing is this. Disagreements don't have to be fatal. As I mentioned, at the end of his life, you find Paul writing about Mark warmly. You find him writing about Barnabas warmly as well, clearly. The, he admired the work that Barnabas was doing, and Barnabas obviously admired the work that Paul was doing. There was no final falling out. They never worked together again. But that doesn't mean they stayed in a state of high dudgeon with one another. And Christians will quarrel. Christians will fall out because we're all human. We all have different points of view. The important thing is what you do afterwards, how you bring it back together again. Let me finish just with one story, and then we're done. This is one of the most famous quarrels in church history. Down at the bottom there, you've got George Whitfield, greatest evangelist of the 18th century, potentially. Certainly uh, more gifted as a speaker, an actor, a, a writer than anybody else in his day. At the top, you've got the other two great evangelists, Charles Wesley on the right, who wrote all the hymns, and John Wesley on the left. Now, the three of these men had been great friends at Lincoln College in Oxford. They'd started the Methodist movement together. And when John Wesley went off to America in 1739, he left it in the hands of Whitfield. And Whitfield grew it immensely through his preaching gifts. And, and, and the whole thing was becoming very exciting when John came back from America and George went across there. George spent some time in America. Good time. Again, blessed, churches formed, people converted. When he came back to England, though, it was different. He said, many of my spiritual children will neither hear, see, nor give me the least assistance. Yes, some of them send threatening letters that God will speedily destroy me. The atmosphere had changed. The people he'd led to Christ had turned against him. Why? Because John Wesley had written a, 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 a pamphlet about a certain point of doctrine criticizing Whitfield's point of view. And it had been enough to turn everybody against him. As a result, they had a big falling out. And Wesley said this, he told me that he and I preached two different gospels and therefore he would not only not join with me or give me the right hand of fellowship, but was resolved publicly to preach against me and my brother wheresoever he preached at all. <laughs> Sounds pretty final, doesn't it? Paroxysmos stuff. Well, you move on 15 years and you find Charles Wesley, who'd always been good friends with Whitfield, writing a poem that goes like this. Come on, my Whitfield, since the strife is past, and friends at first are friends again at last. And it's obvious there was a rapprochement going on, wasn't there? And by, uh, take you another 15 years, and at the end of Whitfield's life, you find that in his will, he leaves two rings, one for John and one for Charles. And his will says, this is in token of my indissoluble union with them, in heart and Christian affection, notwithstanding our difference in judgment about some particular points of doctrine. Who did he ask to preach at his funeral service? John Wesley. <laughs> and so it all came together again. And what was the biggest fracture in the Christian church for some years healed and they started to realize their family relationship with one another again. Now, I don't know why we're doing this this morning. Is it possible that there's somebody here who's got a fractured relationship with somebody else? 
Is it possible that there are things that are, are, are there in the middle between you that need to be sorted out and neither of the two of you are brave enough to do it? I don't know. What I do know is this, that Jesus said, if you're bringing your gift to God and putting it in the temple in the most important place of all, and you remember that your brother has something against you or you have something against him, leave your gift. Go and make it up with your brother. Because otherwise, it's pointless giving gifts to God. It's pointless trying to worship. It's pointless trying to maintain a Christian testimony when there is that rift between you. God wants peace. God wants fellowship. That was why the letter... That was why the delivery, and that was what was challenged by the dispute. Well, we said enough. Let me just pray, and then uh, we'll finish our service. Let's pray together. And as we pray, you might just like to think about the question I asked a moment ago. Is there anybody with whom you are not in perfect harmony at this moment? And if that's the case, is there something that you ought to be doing about it? You may be waiting for them to take the initiative. But maybe it needs to come from you to start with. How often do you criticize other people? What do you say when nobody's listening about what happens here, about your brothers and sisters? Is the fellowship all it ought to be that you enjoy with others? Because God wants you and them to be in such a close relationship with one another that you're contributing to and enriching one another's lives. And if you're not doing that, you're robbing them and they're robbing you of what you ought to be experiencing. So Heavenly Father, as we think about these things, help us to be clear in our own minds, at peace with ourselves and and at peace with you because we're at peace with one another. And as this church continues to grow and flourish and encourage and strengthen one another, may the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the peace that he brings characterize our life together so much that people outside notice and are convinced even by that. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you very much, John. That's the uh, end of our service now. Um, if you'd like to listen to any um, sermons, you can go on the Great Parts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts from, uh, Great Parts Chapel podcast. All the previous sermons are on there. Um, I think I counted the other day. I don't think it includes the ones I've listened to, but there was over 200 on there. So, um, yeah, there's quite a few on there. So, uh, But you can join tonight on the Zoom meeting if you like. Uh, John will be uh, continuing, as I said earlier, speaking... Um, Uh, going through some of the chapters in uh, Psalms. So um, hope you have a good uh, week. Um, Look forward to seeing you uh, next week. George will be speaking next week. So uh, uh, if you'd like to file out individually, and no mingling outside, unfortunately. Not much longer to go, hopefully, like this, but uh, thank you very much.